0: The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: And a very good afternoon. Welcome to the program. We're here at the Grains Research and Development Conference. So it's a bit of a grower update, uh, uh, agronomist update here in Dubbo. And uh, Ondine Slacksmith is here, our reporter in Dubbo. And so I brought the heat with me. It's 40 degrees out there at the moment, apparently.
2: It's a very warm day here today in Dubbo, that's right.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So we'll be talking about that impact on the crops as well with some of the growers uh, shortly on the program. Uh, But before we do anything else, uh, one of the speakers who's just walked off the podium uh, was uh, up uh, in the session earlier talking to mainly some scientists and agronomists here. Warwick Badgery from the Department of Primary Industry was talking about um, the science of greenhouse gases and uh, looking at them in grain cropping and he joins us now, good afternoon. Thank you. So in terms of you know uh, I guess it's all about maximizing profit, maximizing production and not wasting things, is that sort of a a, a summation of of looking at how you're best uh, looking at greenhouse gases in the equation for cropping?
3: Yeah definitely for cropping systems one of the main ways we're looking at addressing greenhouse gases is improving efficiency and one of the reasons we would do that is um, at the moment because there's no carbon price associated with production there's no any actions that farmers must take has to be good for the business so it benefits the business and also reduces emissions. Um, some of the other activities that might have a cost associated with them well, we need sort of some incentive for, to drive change with producers.
1: So I guess the thing is, you, you and, and it's maybe easier now with Precision Ag tools to, to be more precise? Yeah, definitely,
3: definitely. Um, I, I think we have an idea about, as an example, where pH is a problem within a paddock. So there might be some old formulas to, to, that might be applied at a whole paddock level, where we, nowadays with Precision Ag we might be able to better target the problem within the paddock. And, um, yeah, like feel, in the
1: like in the middle of a paddock or, or a, a paddock next to another paddock, totally different sometimes.
3: Absolutely. And that variability, we just sort of tend to average out. And, and our mm. methods of soil sampling have averaged that out. And we've just addressed with a paddock as a unit rather than individual components within the
1: paddock to uh, address the, the problem, whether that's a nitrogen deficiency or a pH problem. So I guess that the issue then is that you want to uh, really target it and you target it for the... The um, best possible production, is that the idea? Or, and you, you, you don't want any loss because any loss is a negative for the environment if you're, if you're sending carbon into the atmosphere?
3: Yeah, that, that's definitely the case. So, yeah, it's really about understanding the levels that may be needed for, for each, uh, whether it's pH or nitrogen, and, and then targeting those. Um, some of the other tools we use to at a, at a farm level is actually some greenhouse gas calculators so that you can assess the uh, impact of your inputs and then that helps to work out what your emissions are for the a paddock farm and, and even the emissions intensity so how much greenhouse gas you're producing per tonne of grain that you're producing.
1: And uh, I guess the thing is can you target it so you're actually producing the, the optimum quality uh, wheat for example that you, that you want, can you do that? I mean is it, is it that sort of precise yet?
3: Yeah and I, but I think best practice management has already working towards those goals so, so this is what most producers are trying to do it at, at the moment and so um, one of the good things about that is Australian grain producers already have a relatively low um, carbon footprint for their product compared to other countries. Um, it's, it's about 315 kilograms of, of carbon dioxide equivalents per tonne of grain. Um, How does
1: that compare to the other say European farmers? Uh,
3: the European farmers might be 40 uh, or, or or 50% higher than that, so we we are relatively efficient on the world stage as far as that goes, which may help us with market access into the future.
1: Right, okay, because we are targeting into those markets where, well, talking about Europe, but other markets too where they are increasingly becoming sensitive about the carbon footprint.
3: Yeah, and, and this is a key part. I mean, one of the key things we wanted to get across today was that a carbon footprint is a really important first step so you know what your emissions are and then we can benchmark that across the Australian industry and, and so and for different crop types and regions and so we can, we know what then can you compare whether you've got a, a higher or a low emissions intensity and increasingly in the future there'll be schemes that actually then use that number and you can use that to um, yeah, potentially access markets as, as that becomes more important in the supply chain.
1: I can hear that, you know, some farmers are sceptical about this and, oh, why do I need to worry about all that? And why do I. But it, it is sort of, we are on the doorstep of that, aren't we? Where those price signals are, could become a positive or a negative for people.
3: Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things we've heard about today is the, um, the farmers are, are quite worried about. Um, things changing and evolving in this space and, and are seeing that as a reason to perhaps sit on the fence. But one of the key things is the same data sits behind these calculators and yes they will change as we get better science to update emissions factors and things like that. So you shouldn't be scared about dipping your toe in the water and, and starting to calculate your carbon footprint because it can always be revised because once the same data has gone in, then we can const- constantly revise that, that the calculations you've done this year as new versions of a tool or an emissions factor come in and, and over time.
1: You, you mentioned too, you said there isn't that sort of um, carbon price in, relate, in relation to grain production. So... Um, how would how would that work? Like, uh, yeah, how would you get a grain price? As I would I would imagine that the that the the carbon you're using and the fertiliser you're using is, is all targeted in actually growing growing the, the grain and uh, and anything else is there wouldn't be much left over, or am I wrong?
3: Yeah, the way it's probably going to work is uh, market access. So there'll be sort of benchmarks.
1: As we were just talking about that. Yeah, yep. yeah. So
3: your footprint. If it's if it's if you're below the benchmark, then you get access into a market, and then it's probably going to be the high markets that that have the benchmarks and access to start with. So. Uh, what we'll look at is probably a price differential, but we we won't know um, exactly what that's going to mean for, for an individual grower in the future because yeah, it's, it, a lot of that will be at market access.
1: And it's particularly if the carbon price increases, then the incentive increases to not waste it.
3: Yeah, and I, I think one of the key drivers from this is is the the big companies that are using grain at the moment. They're they're setting their own carbon uh, or, or net zero targets, so.
1: Well, they're being told to, aren't they, as well?
3: Yeah, well, by their by their customers and shareholders mm. to do so. And um, the only way that they can meet that is because the producers of grain are their scope three, which is their indirect um, uh, emissions. Um, so they need to incentivise those producers who are supplying grain to them to lower that footprint. Otherwise, there's no there's no signal for the grower to do anything different.
1: Mm, Okay, well, it's a fascinating area and uh, one that we haven't really talked that much about, but it's something that we obviously need to to keep watching. Uh, uh, Warwick, thanks for joining us on the program today. Appreciate it. No worries. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour, and we're broadcasting today from the grains update, the GRDC grains update uh, being held here in Dubbo. Now, uh, accompanying Warwick, on the stage was uh, Rob Norton from Norton Agronomics. and um, uh, 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 the issue we didn't touch on it there with with Warwick was nitrogen in food production as well. Obviously, it ties in with the carbon footprint as well. But again, uh, is the message you, you really don't want to waste it, do you?
4: Absolutely, and thanks, thanks, Michael, for having me. Uh, yeah, I think the story with nitrogen is we we use a lot farmers know that it's important and to use nitrogen efficiently is, is a key part of uh, reducing any sort of carbon footprint uh, any greenhouse gas footprint um, around uh, uh, production and uh, nitri- nitrogen has been a major input you know 40 years ago we hardly used any fertilizer nitrogen we used lots of fixed nitrogen from legumes. Uh, and then transition has been to maybe in Australia using nearly 2 million tonne of fertiliser nitrogen, mainly urea. And that has a a footprint, greenhouse gas footprint associated with it through nitrous oxide production and also the production of urea and also the production of the fertiliser itself from ammonia because urea has a carbon molecule in it, a carbon atom in it that comes from uh, uh, fossil fuels. Uh, and the process to, gen- to make ammonia itself uses a lot of energy either from fossil fuels, although there 's been a lot of interest in green ammonia, which yeah, is the production yeah. of am- ammonia using um, solar energy and electrolysis to produce not ammonia rather than using uh, methane to produce the ammonia mm. so that that has a real big potential to reduce the, the total greenhouse gas impact. Uh, of of our on our fertilising
1: and I guess too the other thing is that we're hearing you know farmers always complaining about the rising cost of inputs and also the availability too. So we're talking you know they you know um, with the uh, problems we've had with the ports and uh, international trade getting it into Australia when we aren't be, uh, aren't necessarily producing enough here.
4: Well, we produce none, Mm. no urea as such. Um, All our ureas imported. The last uh, urea production plant was at Gibson Island that closed uh, end of Mm. 2022. Um, And we do rely on those supply chains uh, for a whole lot of things, including nitrogen fertilisers. One of the interesting things is that there are technologies now that would enable farmers to produce their own small scale ammonia plants. Yeah, and we've heard
1: some people talking about that. Yeah, and and it's, it's a, fir- a farms fascinating and things, area, yeah.
4: which then puts it, it's interesting, it's, it's one of potentially a big disruptive influence to the fertiliser industry because it decentralises uh, ammonia production from huge industrial plants to, you know. Hundred ton plants located regionally mm. on a, on a farm or owned yeah, by. Yeah, I think there's some farms. sundown pastoral. I think is looking
1: pastoral. at that and they're using the solar energy as you Correct. were saying there. That's yep. the idea anyway. Yep. And down the track to do that and maybe you're thinking that could be something we might see pop up all over the place.
4: Well, I think it's a it's a viable alternative when you're concerned about supply chain security and also when you consider that the imprint the greenhouse gas footprint of those products will be quite low. Uh, not zero, but um, they certainly be a big green ammonia and uh, that has great benefits. As uh, Warwick was mentioning about identifying what the footprint is in terms of a trade access, uh, if we can do that, we'd probably cut out about a third or so of the uh, nitrous oxide, uh, sorry, of the greenhouse gas footprint associated so, with it.
1: So there's a greenhouse gas footprint, and that has a cost potentially in trade and other markets. Yes. Um, but also, you don't want to use, and this we sort of touched on this a little bit with Warwick, you don't want to use too much and waste it, and then uh, because it costs so much and it's, it's hard to get. So mm. I, I, that's part yeah. of it too, is it?
4: Yeah, I think, but th- there's a tension there in terms of nitrogen use because we. You don't want to use too little, do you? No, and no. I think you know the survey data we've done is that you know two thirds of Australian far- farmers that we surveyed in southeastern Australia weren't using enough nitrogen fertilizer to balance the nitrogen that was being removed in the grain. So essentially, they were mining soil nitrogen, mm. and that is soil organic matter. Mm. And the consequence of that is we've seen over the past. 50 years of continual decline in soil fertility due to soil organic matter decline. So I think getting that balance right, Michael, is really important uh, and for growers to know uh, to know what sort of nitrogen balances they have in their paddocks is a, is a good starting point. Not that hard to do. How much nitrogen fertiliser uh, you use, how much crop yield goes out the gate, maybe include uh, Issues, uh, you know, fixed nitrogen in that over a period of four or five years. Look at that ongoing nitrogen balance.
1: So, and I guess to the, you know, we're not using the, uh, we're not fixating with uh, with uh, pasture crops like we used to as well. But maybe not as many mixed farms or the big or the big uh, big grain farms aren't you aren't running as much stock. Is that the issue?
4: Yeah, I, and that, you know, I've talked about in my talk. I talked about the grand challenge that we face in. In agriculture, is actually how do we replace the nitrogen that was being put in from pastures because a lot of the, the pulse crops are somewhat nitrogen neutral, that is, you remove nearly as much nitrogen as fixed. And so the grand challenge is how do we redress it? How do we go back to a pasture based system, maybe, uh, and uh, build that soil fertility back up again? You now, I think carbon credits and carbon trading aren't going to be. Uh, supporting that but what growers can be encouraged to think about is growing the best crops on the best fertility soil.
1: You're listening to the New South Wales Country. Our Rob Norton is here from Norton Agronomics. He's just been uh, talking about uh, nitrogen in food production and also the greenhouse gas impacts. Uh, it's one of the topics that they've uh, been addressing here at the Grains Research and Development Corporation uh, uh, chat here in Dubbo. Probably about, I don't know, 100 people here. Uh, Rob, uh, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on the program today.
4: Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Good night.
1: It's uh, coming up to uh, 20 minutes past 12.
0: The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: We hear a lot these days about artificial intelligence and how it, you know, help uh, help you uh, write your essays. And <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But, we're, but uh, talking about the, uh, the fact that uh, you can use it in regards to crop production and decision making, and that's something that I hadn't thought about, but it's, it's obvious really that you can use artificial intelligence and it's... Uh, we'll give you a wide sweep of information and um, Liam Ryan from the GNAC is here. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Country Hour.
5: Thank you, good to be here.
1: So you didn't use AI for your you you're too you're too uh, old for that. You wouldn't yeah, have yeah, the yeah. AI written. neither I. I, I, I was see. too old if I looked ahead at my disposal
5: actually. It's um yeah, there's a few essays being written um, word by word from GGB Absolutely the there
1: are. don't yeah, you yeah, you yeah exactly right. Quite quite uh, it's quite obvious. Um, but, but but uh, in regards to decision-making and crops, it it's re- can be really quite handy.
5: Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's a really fascinating one where I think there's been a bit of hype around where AI and agronomy are sort of fit that it has for agronomic decision-making. And we've kind of thought about it in three different areas. So tools like ChatGTP or Gemini from Google, these large language models are actually reasonably quite adept at retrieving publicly available information and synthesising that in easy-to-use ways. When you start to get more to agronomic prescriptions and things that involve biophysical complexity, they tend to fall down in terms of, I think, the hope that people might think they're useful for. But again, that's that's largely a function of the quality and quantity of input data like any kind of statistical model, that's what they really feed off.
1: Mm. So I guess so. It's early days, so you're not going to be able to put in the equation and get out an answer. I mean, basically, that's what you're saying. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's hard for it to go deep enough to be really prescriptive.
5: Yeah, it's really context specific. Probably like most things in agronomy. So in some of the GRDC portfolio, for instance, around nitrogen decisions, we've had a lot of R and D developing a workflow to completely automate a mid-season end prescription using variable rate technology, and that performs really quite well. Uh, But for other things, uh, it just tends to, tools like GTP, for instance, tend to spit out quite contextual information, which, you know, is relevant to agronomy, but doesn't really help provide that context-specific advice that an agronomist would normally provide to their client.
1: So down the track, though, it might be possible to use and say, how much nitrogen would I need with this sort of rainfall and these are the paddocks I've got? It's possible that in the future they might be able to tell you, give you some answers to that?
5: Yeah, very possible. Like if we look overseas, for instance, in sort of corn and soy production systems in North America where they're a bit more advanced technologically and the market size is much more bigger, there's some really powerful AI-enabled agronomic models for decision-making and just late last year, so Bayer, or the FieldView platform, operated by, owned by Bayer, and Microsoft were touting capabilities around natural language queries, so instead of the traditional way in which you'd engage with farm management software, you could ask a natural language prompt and extract information that way, and that's a really promising area, I think, into the new future for agronomy and AI.
1: I guess, it's a, but at the moment, we're just at the sort of overview stage, is that right? But how useful is that then?
5: Yeah, it's, I think in terms of it, it's, it's useful in some ways probably for at a higher level. Um, I guess the other part that people don't necessarily see with AI and agronomy is that it's a tool in the toolbox used in a lot of R&D contexts by both private and public organisations. So in GRDC and some of the examples that you know, we're going to talk through is around things like predicting the variety-specific flowering time in any given environment, we can deploy tools like AI Um, in the context of domain expertise around crop physiology and agronomy to help produce much better data than we previously could to help agronomists and growers make decisions. And so there is value there in the interim, both from the GTP, Gemini kind of context and also through other products coming to the market soon in the next sort of 6 to 12 months. But I think at times it can be a bit overhyped.
1: So I get yeah. So you're saying that uh, early days, and we've got a way to go. But it's it's out there. It's available, and people can. Maybe, what, what, what would your advice to farmers be in regards to AI? Is it worth having a bit of a crack at it?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, again, even the, the sort of applications of AI that have generated mainstream interest, like GDP from OpenAI, Gemini from Google, they're absolutely worth a play around, just with you know prompts, queries, seeing what capability they provide. Uh, especially for those people who uh, get frustrated by things like working with different data types and different types of analysis techniques because they can spit out code for you in programs like Python and other areas. And they're really quite adept at helping people do that sort of thing and lowering the barriers to entry for some analytics kind of processes that otherwise people couldn't do. So early days, great promise, uh, but very context specific.
1: Yeah. So, um, but but you can, if you put that and if but if you put that context or the specific details of a farm in there, you might get gobbledygook back. Is that what you might get? You might see.
5: Uh, not necessarily, but again, probably. I mean, if you think about so platforms like potentially AgWorld or PCT and other companies or data farming here in our market and FieldView, a lot of them have agronomic features built on some context or at least use some aspect of AI, not all, but some do. But a lot of the prediction quality from those products or features is often heavily dependent on the quality and quantity of input data they have as well. So the the key piece is like most statistical models and other speakers today, it's garbage in, garbage out in terms of the data piece. That's Really important focus for growers and agronomists: collecting and quality-assuring digital farm records, yield data, in particular. Yeah, you
1: stole my next question about garbage in, garbage out. So, yeah, um, and it, the quality of the data going in. But sometimes it sounds to me like the AI, uh, uh, the AI sort of um, that's available can't deal with the sort of really intricate information you might want to chuck into it.
5: Yeah, it depends, and there's a really broad branch of science within AI and machine learning broadly and different types of analysis techniques for different use cases. Um, But, yeah, there, there is, for many applications in agronomy, there's probably only so far you can get without a reasonable breadth of quality biophysical data to put into some of those models.
1: Liam, appreciate your time on the program today. Fascinating and and something that we hadn't really thought about, but it's obviously early days, but it's something that farmers can maybe play around with at home and check it out and see what it it spits out for them and it might be useful.
5: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot coming through the pipeline as well, so it's definitely an exciting time.
1: Mm, Okay, Liam, thanks for your time on the program today. It's coming up to 25 minutes past 12.
0: On ABC Radio New South Wales, you're with Michael Condon for the New South Wales Country Hour.
1: And uh, talking here at the uh, GADC Crop Update, uh, a lot of agronomist scientists here in Dubbo, and uh, we just thought we'd talk to... One of the farmers, uh, reasonably local, Roger is here from West Wyalong, so just down the road, really. Is that Hi, right?
6: Yeah, just down the road <laughs> a little down bit. Just down you know, the road a couple bit. of hours drive, it's just down the road, <laughs> really.
1: Exactly. In the country, that's what it's like. <laughs> uh, and I just thought it'd be good to touch base with how things are going. You know, um, we hear that, uh, you know, I know that uh, people were concerned it was too wet, some were too dry. What West Wyalong? What's happening there?
6: I oh, look West Wyalong's looking looking pretty good at the moment. I think um, there's a reasonable level of confidence uh, in the season. We've got uh, good subsoil. Uh, you know, we've been able to uh, you know, get good kills on summer weeds, uh, and the rain's been useful rainfall. It's, uh, it's been significant. Um, so yeah, we going into the into the w- winter cropping program with a pretty reasonable profile of moisture.
1: Now you normally get about. Um Four hundred uh, millimeters a year, or something like that. Yeah, around four?
6: about four, four fifty, four eighty. Four eighty, um, okay.
1: And you've and you've nearly got that now.
6: We've we've had uh, since the beginning of January about two hundred and seventy mills on our place, but that's quite variable. We've got country to the north of us, uh, only thirty kilometres away, that's probably only had half that rainfall.
1: Mm. And I know that um, uh, also hearing from some of the growers at Lake Kajeligo, they're pretty happy about the. They've got subsoil moisture. They've been having rain as well, so yeah, things I, I are think set so. Up.
6: So, um, you know, Lake probably suffered a little bit last year from a lack of rain, but oh. they've certainly caught up over the summertime and and built those profiles up. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, generally in in our in that region, there, there's a fair degree of confidence in the season at this point.
1: And we were hearing last year that a lot of people, because the world wheat price, the wheat price here was pretty good, some people were chasing wheat, they were growing a lot of wheat. Do you think we, we might see a change in people's rotation?
6: Look, I think that's probably a fair comment. Um, I, I think uh, uh, you know, the previous couple of years have been quite challenging, and, and uh, people are looking to, uh, uh, you know, Looking for a bit of security, so wheat's always been a, um, a a pretty safe option. But I think we'll probably see a, a swing back into rotations and people you know, getting their rotations aligned with where they need to be from a disease perspective. I think we'll see some of that happening this year. So, uh, yeah, probably some legumes and, and some canola more in the rotations, I and, would
1: think. And you might be thinking, because you're a little bit wet, you might be thinking more into canola?
6: Yeah look I think um, I think with moisture levels the way they are there's certainly the the possibility of um, some of those crops that can be sown a little bit earlier going into the ground um, particularly if we do get uh, a rain event uh, you know, in that sowing window uh, people will certainly uh, jump onto those uh, earlier sowing options.
1: So what, what do you need from here on in? You'd, you'd like to see rain in what end of March or April? Or, you know, just... Look
6: I, I think um, you know Everyone's a little bit different, but um, uh, certainly in our area, some of the, some of the larger uh, properties will probably start sowing around the beginning of April in in dry conditions. If if conditions are dry, but um, if if there is sowing moisture there, then. Then they'll be jumping on varieties of crops that they can get into the ground early.
1: So, if you could order it, what would you what would you want?
6: <laughs> uh, Anzac Day is always a pretty pretty good number to work so on. 30, 30, 40 30 mils on thirty
1: mils forty mils on endec day. Be very nice. I and you've got the subsoil moisture there to get it up and running. A- absolutely.
6: Yeah. If, if if we were to get that sort of rain at that time, uh, that would join moisture up and and you know, would get those dry sown crops. Up and going, and it'd be a perfect start for the winter, winter wheat, or for the winter, uh, the wheat growing
1: mm. season. So that, and that's a big area we're talking about, where there's a lot of uh, a lot of crops growing in West Wyalong, yeah. go out to Forbes, and so yeah. Yeah, it
6: certainly is. It, it, it's a it's it's a massive wheat growing area, yeah. or or cereal growing, cereal growing yeah. Yeah. Wheat, yep. wheat, barley, canola being yep. the main main varieties, um, and yeah. It, it's certainly got the potential there. There's a great start with the moisture that we have, and uh, yeah, if we can, it won't take a lot of rain through the year to produce a reasonable crop.
1: Just just before you go, the the China barley situation. People are people relieved about that, and pretty happy there, about. I think the there
6: barley. certainly is a degree of relief um, there now that um, you know, barley has a home close close to home again. Closer, um, yeah, 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 But um, and and I think I think too we'll probably see. Um, some more barley grown because of that. Um, it certainly brings some certainty into the uh, you know, into the farmers' thinking.
1: And, you know, like you say, helping with those rotations and keeping diseases at bay and things like that, which is important too.
6: Ab- absolutely. You know, the more more variation and the more tools we have in the toolbox, the better off we are.
1: Roger Bolte, thanks for joining us on the program today.
6: Thank you. Appreciate have a great it. day.
1: Yep, We'll do our best. It's coming up to... Uh, 29 minutes to one here on The Country let's, uh, let's get some news headlines now from Bridget Murphy. Good afternoon.
7: Thanks, Condon. Former Treasurer and Ambassador to the U.S. Joe Hawkeye is calling on the head of ACO to name the former Australian politician who was recruited by a foreign spy ring. Mike Burgess last night revealed an unnamed Australian politician once suggested introducing the spies to a Prime Minister's family member. Families of hostages held in Gaza and their supporters have begun a four-day march across Israel, demanding their loved ones be set free. The march comes as negotiations are underway in Qatar for a deal between Hamas and Israel that would lead to a ceasefire in exchange for the release of hostages. A group urging Australians to cut back on alcohol usage says the pandemic has reignited risky drinking behaviour for a lot of Australians. The National Drug Strategy Household Survey found one in four young women aged 18 to 24 drinks more than the recommended guidelines. Australian banks have been accused of letting down long-standing customers in the race to go digital. Checks are already being phased out well ahead of the federal government's 2030 timeline. National Seniors Australia says a cashless economy, along with branch closes, is acutely affecting older people. More news at 1pm.
1: Thanks, Bridget. Let's go to the weather now, and uh, Neil's at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Hello, Michael. Pretty hot in Dubbo today, let me tell you. 40 degrees, yes. I think. Yep.
8: Yes, well, actually, currently, looking at the odds, it's just under 37, but expecting a top of about 41. So, mm. But it's hot across much of the state today, out of uh, some cooler air that's going to eventually make its way into the, the inland parts. It's still a fairly hot day expected for tomorrow, in uh, much, well, at least the northern half of the inland. Uh, down the Riverina, probably more likely in the mid to maybe high 30s, but still in the 40s in the north. And then eventually for Saturday, it starts to taper off 40 degrees, only in the far north around Burke and, and Morey and places like that, but further south it drops back to the low to mid 30s, so there's good news there. It's quite unstable across the state, expecting probably... Fairly dry thunderstorms in the west today, and there's been uh, active thunderstorms through the Riverina uh, throughout the morning, but not a great deal falling out of them. And uh, looks like potentially some severe thunderstorms mainly around the northern table and mid north coast this afternoon. Could be some large hail, damaging winds, and heavy rain with that. Tomorrow, still lots of showers and thunderstorms around, except in the very far southern areas. So the southeast and the southern border region probably remaining dry, but the remainder quite unstable, so further showers and thunderstorms, potentially severe thunderstorms from the central west across to the the Hunter, mid-north coast, northern Tablelands, northwest slopes area. And then on Saturday, similar area, generally still the north coast, northern Tables, right down to the central Tablelands, and the Hunter for potential severe thunderstorms. And increasing shower activity in the east on Saturday as well, and then on Sunday, it contracts further north, but still remaining a chance of severe thunderstorms, especially across that northeast there from the Hunter northwards.
1: So when we're talking about that change coming through, is it going, are we going to see a big drop in temperature? It doesn't sound like there's a lot of rain, but no. a big drop in temperature?
8: No, there's it, it, a, a fairly weak change coming through the south coast this afternoon and evening. That'll cool things off a little, but still remaining quite, quite warm, even in coastal parts for tomorrow. There's a better change coming through during Saturday, so that'll cool things off along well the coast. But certainly inland parts remaining quite hot until we get through to Sunday, when it finally pushes north into Queensland. Those forty-degree temperatures.
1: Right, and so when when might we see relief for the uh, for the um, inland parts of the state then?
8: Well, yeah, by Sunday it looks like the, the temperatures still well in the thirties, uh, low to mid thirties. But certainly, yeah. The, worst of the heat, will be over by Sunday and then um, just remains that way in the mid-30s for the rest of the time, so yeah, some rolling... What, for
1: the next seven days, you reckon?
8: Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Mm. You're not going to see maximum temperatures uh, much below mid-30s for most of the inland for the next week. Right, okay. Week.
1: And no rain on the way any, anywhere on the horizon well, at all?
8: With the Yeah, with the showers and thunderstorms, more likely in the east and the mm. northern inland, maybe out yeah, to the northwest slopes and plains, but because f- it's so hot underneath, a lot of it will be evaporating for you the ground. So you expect yeah, fairly dry thunderstorms once you get west too far. And away. when you
1: talk about the dry thunderstorms, is there uh, a possible lightning strikes so and maybe a oh, fire yes. risk there?
8: Yes, that's the trouble, yes. Yeah, you get the you still get the lightning, still active, but uh, no rainfall to dampen things. So, yeah, the threat of, of lightning fires is, is always there. Luckily, the, the fire dangers aren't terribly... They're high, but they're not uh, too they're bad. Not
1: catastrophic. No.
8: no, no. So that's the thing. But if you're in the northeast, northern tablelands, north coast, looks like being fairly wet for the weekend and into next week. But if you're west of the divide, potentially you might get the odd shower or thunderstorm. But it's hit and miss with showers and thunderstorms over that part of the world. So you may not get much at all, uh, even on Saturday. But I think Sunday, Saturday, and Sunday, the best area for the inland parts is probably the northwest slopes and plains. If you go further west or south from there, less of a chance of getting any significant rainfall from the. From the
1: and you mentioned and some uh, potential of some uh, damaging hail. Where might they be expecting that? Is it going to yes. affect uh, some cropping areas or some? Well, or some yeah,
8: it's, it's mainly the mid north coast. Blueberries, north or yeah,
1: mid north yeah. coast. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
8: yeah so just. Um, Still, plenty of moisture in the air. Uh, very tropical, so plenty of moisture uh, potentially to uh, precipitate out. So while that remains, until we get some dry westerly air across the state, it's going to remain quite a threat. So rainfall is probably the biggest threat, but you can't really out uh, large hail and even damaging winds uh, over the next few days.
1: Especially some of those blueberry food. crops or horticulture crops or whatever might, might, but you never know. It's a bit hit and miss. You just yeah, it could happen. Is. Yeah, yeah. That's difficult right. to
8: difficult to predict. Yeah, it looks like no threat of any big rainfall events in the near future anyway. But hopefully longer term, as uh, your guest before was hoping for on Anzac Day or... <laughs> That's, <is right>. <laughs> That's <laughs> Try right. and organise it.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Put the, yeah, Get on the phone and, uh, and, uh, mm. and order it now. Yeah. OK, yeah. all right. Will do. <laughs> Thanks for that, Neil. Okay. Neil Fraser there at the Bureau. It's 21 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. And one of the...
9: The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon
0: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: Well, in another blow to the state's beekeeping industry, the Department of Primary Industries has confirmed it has officially detected brawler fly and says there's no scientific or economic justification to try and eradicate it from New South Wales. The parasite, which looks similar to varroa mite, but with only six legs and not as destructive, was found... Near Tamworth in mid-January, with beekeepers across the state informed more than a month later on February the nineteenth via the DPI's Bee Biosecurity newsletter. While once considered a main threat to commercial beekeeping in New South Wales, the DPI says it's now not considered a significant pest. DPI's manager of plant biosecurity prevention and preparedness, Dr. Chris Anderson, told Kim Honan the fly was found during routine surveillance
10: and one of the alcohol washers detected a brawler fly or bee louse, as they call it. It is interesting because in September 2022, there had been hives moved into New South Wales from Victoria. And once those got into New South Wales, they were found to contain bee louse. Um, And so those were sent back to Victoria at the time. This was during the varroa mite response. Um, And then the Victorians did quite a lot of work on that and found a number of locations across Victoria where bee louse was present. So we suspect that it's actually been on the mainland moving through the bee industry for quite a long time. Um, And it's just that it's a very cryptic thing and it's often hard to find uh, unless you're looking directly at a bee louse.
0: Yeah. So it's not endemic in Victoria, though, uh, Borula fly.
10: It is, yes. Yeah. So oh, it is endemic um, in Victoria now. Yeah, so the, the discovery in September 2022 led to quite a lot of work in Victoria. And as a result of that, New South Wales uh, removed its regulations, which had previously been in place because we believed that broiler fly was only in Tasmania, um, which was proven to be incorrect. And it's because it's such a minor pest, it's really only an issue for people who produce comb honey and the standard procedures around the production of comb honey deal with any issue caused by Um it wasn't considered to be of economic importance.
0: You're saying it's not a significant pest, but the DPI on its website says it's one of the main threats to commercial beekeeping in New South Wales. Is that outdated now?
10: Well, potentially. When we looked at it in September 2022, the expert advice we got was that it's a, a minor pest of bees, um, that it's usually, and this is advice from a uh, Tasmanian beekeepers as well who who live with it routinely and that the main issue that it causes is potentially um, damaging comb honey uh, which can be quite a lucrative product to sell but that that risk is managed by freezing um, which is what is done for small hive beetle anyway.
0: So how many brawler flies were, were found in this apiary near Tamworth?
10: I believe it was only one but I don't know off the top of my head, sorry.
0: Okay, and so where did these bees come from?
10: Yeah, the tracing... For that particular uh, apiary actually is linked to a number of different places in New South Wales, but there were no interstate um, leaks. So there's, it, what it probably demonstrates is that there is a low level of brawler fly in the industry in New South Wales, because we do obviously have um, the bee industry is not tied to one jurisdiction and beehives move around all over the countryside. So those detections in Victoria and those commercial beekeepers in Victoria that were affected clearly sell sell bees uh, and move bees around within the eastern seaboard. Um, so it's not surprising to expect it to pop up somewhere else.
0: So is there any truth uh, to rumours that they were high-valued tocal queen bees?
10: Um, it's it's possible that, that some of these hives uh, may have been high-value queens that have been put through the varroa mite uh, protocol back when the response was on. Um, but I don't have that detail, sorry.
0: So do you think it won't be long before it becomes endemic in New South Wales? How far off is, is that likely? You're saying it's now endemic in Victoria, it's been in Tasmania for some time now?
10: Yeah, so we would consider that this detection is evidence that it is already in New South Wales. As I said before, because there's never really been any effective barrier between the Victorian industry and the New South Wales industry prior to Varroa, that would have uh, prevented bee louse moving around.
0: So at what point then do you declare it endemic in New South Wales?
10: These pests, and there are other pests that have got nothing to do with bees that we deal with on a regular basis where we get detections in New South Wales, Well, we'll discuss with experts and we'll subject it to risk assessment or risk analysis around whether it is something that there should be an attempt at eradicating And for a pest like this, where there is um, minimal uh, economic impact based on the advice uh, of Tasmanian beekeepers, and there is uh, good evidence that it's been present in Victoria for a long period of time, um, and there's a strong movement of bee colonies between New South Wales and Victoria on a regular basis, we wouldn't be able to to claim that it's not present in New South Wales.
0: So what conversations have you then had with industry about eradicating it from New South Wales? Or are you saying that's just not on the table, that there's not going to be any efforts from here on in to eradicate it?
10: That's right. There's no scientific or economic justification for attempting to eradicate borough fly from New South Wales.
0: But have you had that conversation with industry?
10: Yeah, we discussed the detections around broiler fly with the industry when they happened, um, including in 2022 when there was a detection on hives that had been moved in from Victoria, uh, and also the removal of the regulations around broiler fly.
1: Dr Chris Anderson from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries speaking to Kim Hone. and the DPI has since confirmed that uh, broiler fly was found on Tocal Queen Bees at that property near Tamworth. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour now um, talking about um, pests and diseases. Uh, We're joined now to talk about Russian wheat aphids. It's one of the issues that's been discussed here at the Grains uh, Update here in Dubbo. And Zeritsa Durich from uh, the DPI is with us now. Good afternoon.
9: Good
2: afternoon.
1: Welcome to the program. Russian wheat aphid, so it came in, and when it came in, there was quite a sense of alarm about it, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, it came in 2016, and since then... um, uh, It uh, has spread across South Australia, uh, into Tasmania, New South Wales, Western Australia, uh, uh, and of course Victoria, only Queensland left. So Only far. Queensland yeah.
1: <laughs> left. I wonder why it hasn't moved up into Queensland yet.
2: Ah, well, um, uh, in northern New South Wales, uh, it was in 2018 and 19, and then we had intensive drought happen in um, uh, end of uh, 2019. So summer was really dry, and for these uh, pests, uh, there is need for um, a, a way to overbridge summer. So we call it oversummering, um, uh, and uh, in that case they need uh, alternative hosts over summer. It was really intensive drought and there was no uh, any uh, uh, host options for this aphid to survive and that's likely what triggered it uh, to stay in region where it's uh, still available uh, uh, alternative uh, sources of hosts uh, and it was back in northern New South Wales last year. So since 2019, we didn't have it around uh, uh, Tamworth and northern New South Wales uh, until last uh, August, mm. uh, last last year, August.
1: And why should people worry about it? It does. It can affect the yields quite significantly.
2: Uh, Yes, it can pick uh, yield quite significantly if it's not uh, monitored and uh, actually uh, if uh, it's not actioned on time. So, um, uh, agronomists and growers should be uh, 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 ready to monitor their crop uh, since it emerged uh, uh, until yeah it reaches uh, around like um, growth stage 50, and then they can get get some rest from it because by that time uh, if it can't do any damage in later growth stages. So if it's going to have such an impact on crop yield then what would you say is the best uh, management technique for producers to be considering? Uh, Well, there are different management techniques, but one of the most important, especially in this time of year, is to manage that green bridge so that they can uh, cross over from that green bridge from alternative hosts into uh, autumn crops, which will be sowed a bit later this year.
1: So uh, management and maybe uh, some pesticide, you need to spray if the, if the numbers are up at yeah. a certain level?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, there are existing um, uh, US threshold, but um, uh, Sardi, together with the uh, GRDC funding, developed uh, one really handy tool. It's called Russian with Aphid uh, uh, Action Threshold Tool, uh, which uh, everyone can use. It's uh, available online. Um, uh, the only thing that uh, uh, people need to, uh, need to spy into their crop and check uh, numbers of invested tillers, put in that calculator and it will uh, let you know uh, if there is need to action so that your crop is safe during sensitive uh, period. <laughs>
1: So it's worth having a look around. People need to be aware if it's there because it can cause real
2: problems. Yes, Mm. yes. Uh, They need to monitor. There is a a, a protocol for monitoring, uh, which uh, almost all our agronomists are um, uh, aware of.
1: And how did it get here? So Russian wheat aphid, it's uh, not just in Russia, it's in Europe as it's well. It's worldwide. Worldwide, yes, now. Yeah. Yes. How did it get to Australia
2: then? Um, uh, likely through transportation of goods and uh, all other uh, things. I mean, it's not um, possible uh, to close the uh, uh, country in such a... And, and isolate it uh, so that uh, these kind of little creatures stay away. So
1: really small creatures, some biosecurity. It'll, e- it'll easily get through... Uh, any sort of monitoring by biosecurity. Uh,
2: biosecurity is doing great job. Mm. Uh, now, with all of that, uh, however, I mean, um, nah, it is it is not possible uh, to to stay. Isolated for the, from the rest of the world, to mm. be honest, and a uh, lots of uh, um, yeah, past issues uh, are um, uh, uh, are still away from Australia. But uh, Australia is really uh, um, yeah, isolated in that, and uh, uh, and it's possible to keep it uh, outside of uh, world um, yeah, worldwide past, but not. Not forever. <laughs> mm,
1: and we've seen Varroa might get in, we've seen yes. the Russian wheat aphid get in, so yeah, it's uh, that uh, you can't, and we can't uh, check every container.
2: Yes, of course, of mm. course, it's not possible to mm. do.
1: Appreciate your time on the program yeah. today. Uh, uh, Zaritza Durich from the DPI talking about Russian wheat aphid. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour. Thank you. It's coming up to uh, 10 minutes to one.
9: Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The ASIO chief accuses a former Australian politician of selling out to foreign interests. Are there enough checks and balances, especially for federal ministers? The latest retail sales figures are out today. What will they mean for interest rates? And 10-nil, the Matildas qualify for the Paris Olympics after defeating Uzbekistan. Can Australia go all the way to gold? Those stories are much more coming up on The World Today.
1: You're yeah, listening to the Country Hour and uh, we're here at the GRDC Crop Update here in Dubbo and uh, one of the farmers who's here is Bruce Watson from uh, between uh, Parks and Forbes, a grain grower. Good afternoon, welcome to the program. Afternoon, Michael. How's the season going for you? Oh, Well, actually, actually I'll, ask you, I'll ask you about this. Uh, the forum first. What do growers get out of coming to forums like this?
11: Uh, Basically, the idea behind the GRDC grower or advisor updates is to be able to disseminate the latest research and development findings, uh, to growers and agronomists so hopefully they can get uptake on farms and improve grower productivity uh, productivity and profitability. So that's
1: why we're talking about AI, we're talking about carbon in uh, cropping. Yeah, we're
11: trying to make it topical so things that are front of mind for growers um, at the moment so there'll be some stuff around disease and weeds which is sort of the bread and butter stuff but then obviously things around new technology, uh, greenhouse gas and carbon accounting is becoming very, very front of mind for growers so we'll be able to get some guest speakers in there to be able to hopefully provide some more clarity to growers around what, what, what these issues are and how they can uh, use them on their farms to try and, uh, say, improve improve their performance. Mm.
1: Now, you're on the northern panel of the GRDC, I know, and uh, uh, your season, how have, you, how have you gone? How are things going So,
11: our farms are between Parks and Forbes. We have been exceptionally wet. We have had 400 mils of rain on our farm uh, since the start of November, which is about 80% of our annual rainfall in three months. So... Mm. The hot, dry summer that was meant to come didn't, didn't come, come to us.
1: Mm, mm. <laughs> and, and no doubt some questions for the bomb about that.
11: Yeah, yeah. So we normally do plant summer crop at home. Um, we weren't full profile coming into planting, and we, on the back of that forecast, we actually dropped our sorghum program out. Um, but we have planted 400 hectares of mung beans, and they actually look quite good at the moment. So we have been able to get something out of the summer, but we're full profile leading into winter and yeah, reasonably confident there. Just be nice to get... Grain prices up a bit higher and try and bring our cost base down a bit. But, well, uh,
1: yeah, that's right, because we have seen the dip in the world grain price. Uh, yeah,
11: particularly canola. Canola's yeah. come back significantly, and I think we might see that reflected a little bit in canola area this year. Um, chickpeas are making a bit of a resurgence. There's some whispers that potentially tariffs might be coming off in India, so I think this area, Dubbo North, will see an increase in chickpea plant. Um, and canola, obviously, the economics qu- aren't quite as compelling as where they were yeah, two years there's ago. there's
1: a lot of soybean in uh, America and corn and uh, soybean in Argentina. A lot of everything everywhere yeah.
11: and um, <laughs> not a lot of Chinese demand, unfortunately.
1: Mm, not, not, not for that, although they're still buying our barley and, and our yep. wheat, uh, yep. so they prefer our wheat to, to the French, which is good. Um, and uh, I suppose what you'd like to see from here on in for your season?
11: Uh, well... Probably not 41 degrees, considering we've got some mung beans coming, <laughs> coming oh, right. on. Okay. Um, we'd like a little bit more rain, to be brutally honest. And, yeah, we'll kick off canola planting if we've got water uh, first week of April. So we'd like to see some, some rain like leading 30, into that. 30
1: them. mils in April, just like we were talking uh, about.
11: Yeah, ones. yeah, a little bit earlier than Roger. I've, right. uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take mine first week of April if we can, and we'll try and juggle a bit of harvesting and sowing and, uh, yeah, get stuck into it.
1: All right, appreciate your time on the program Thank today. you,
11: Michael. You have a great day.
1: Uh, we will. We'll do our best. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, time to go to markets. Uh,
5: 64,
1: First up, let's go to Yes Cattle.
12: Good afternoon, Michael. once-in-every-four-year sale saw a slight increase in numbers for a total yarding of 686 fair to good quality of cattle. The cow market was the highlight, lifting 20 cents, heavy prime cows topping at 271. There were a few good pens of feeder cattle along with a few runs of well-bred weaners, and a limited supply of cattle to process. All the usual buyers were operating, except for the cows, all other categories were firm to a slightly softer market. Yearlings to process slipped 12, quality related 230 to 314. Feeder steers, D's a few cents, medium weights 261 to 350, heavy weights topping at 322. Feed to heifers firm, averaging 268. Young cattle returning the paddock did not make the price of the previous sales. Steers 240 to 361, heifers 230 to 324. Heavy grain cattle price unchanged, steers 250 to 306. Heifers 210 to 290. Cows much dearer. Cows for restockers reach 253. Heavy prime cows 245 to 271. This is David Kent at SELX
1: YAS for MLA. Let's go to Armidale cattle now, James Armitage.
6: Good afternoon. Strong breed specific demand from local restockers. Saw so wiener and yearling steers under 330 kilos. Sell the deer trends. The weaners reaching 461 cents a kilo, a total of 1230 head on offer. Young cattle well supplied in front of the usual buyers. Trends generally dearer through the young cattle while showing a quality related price change in places. Low weight yearling steers made to 396. The medium weights reached 383 cents while heavyweights topped at 364. Heifer weaners softened from 280 to 310. Medium and heavy heifer yearling slightly dearer 270 to 334. Heavy growing cattle to process saw the steers 285 to 299 heifers to 290 cents. A deer a cow market with heavy thrown and four scores. 230 to 261
1: cents, up 15 cents on a fortnight ago. James Armitage for MLA in Armidale. Let's go to Dubbo cattle now. And Graham Richard. Good afternoon.
6: There was a jump in numbers with 4,400 drawn for. The quality was a little plainer with a limited supply of prime cattle. Overall, less weight through the yard, and there were more young cattle suited to the feeders and restockers. Also, 1,300 cows were drawn for. Medium weight feeder steers are firm, 310 to 376. The heavyweights are back 11 cents, 325 to 364. Medium weight feeder heifers are fully firm, 266 to 323. Trade cattle are 2 to 3 cents cheaper. The heifers, 270 to 305 and steers out to 320. Prime grown steers and bullocks have jumped 20 to 25 cents, 280 to 327 with feeders paying to 329. Lighter-grown heifers are 9 to 12 cents stronger to feed, reaching 3.10. The prime heavyweights are firm. Heavy cows are 18 cents dearer, with PTIC cows reaching 2.72, and the prime
1: heavyweights are averaging 2.62. And this has been Graham Richard. And let's go to Wagga Sheep and Lambs and Leanne Dax.
9: Good afternoon. There was a notable increase due to price rises last week with 41,000 lambs and 23,000 sheep offered. Despite a mixed quality, there was a wide selection available for processors, feedlots and restockers. While the market experienced an overall softening, lighter secondary lambs for restocking saw dearer trends with lambs for feeding on purposes, mostly maintaining their prices peaking around 140. However, heavy lambs weighing over 30 kilos sold $5 to $6 cheaper, ranging at 182 to 244. Lambs weighing 26 to 30 kilo faced a price drop of anywhere from $10 to $20, selling at 145 to 165. Heavy trade lambs 145 to 160 while trade lambs 20 to 24 kilo had a slight decrease in price selling at 120 to 158. In the sheep market there was over 5,000 sheep sold initially this morning with prices slipping 15 to 20 dollars. The balance of the sheep are yet to be sold. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA.
1: And that's the market information for today. And Ondine Slack-Smith still here with me and uh, the GRDC update. Some fascinating stuff came out at, at this uh, update this year.
2: Yes, yeah, certainly. It's been you know great to see so many uh, people coming together here in Dubbo. And... Yeah, great, talking about, great day. Talking
1: about issues like AI, which you hadn't really touched on in regards to cropping, and also the carbon and, and cropping stuff as well. There was keen interest in that too here today as well. As well as the weather. Everyone talking about how hot it is is not ideal for grain grain growers.
2: Certainly. Very warm day here in Dubbo.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Up to about 41 degrees, I think, or something like that. You're listening to The Country Our Broadcasting. Tomorrow we'll be looking at the seasonal update, talking about rain and uh, Hot weather, a seasonal update on the program tomorrow and also uh, other issues as well coming up on the program tomorrow. We'll talk to you then between 12 and 1.